The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like a burnished brass, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Dear New City family and friends, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please be seated. 
I remember visiting my grandparents' house for Christmas in Chester, Illinois, little town in southern Illinois on the river, and I was a new Christian. I didn't know the Bible well, but I wanted to know it, so I read it a lot. And I remember one night, very late, I saw this last book of the Bible called Revelation, and I thought, what in the world is this? It looks pretty good. And I opened the Bible to Revelation, I started reading from Revelation, and in one sitting, I read from beginning to end and remember being so overwhelmed at the joy and victory of what I get to be part of as a Christian. The longer I lived and went into my Christian life, I realized more and more that the book of Revelation is very confusing. I wasn't confused my first reading because I didn't know enough to be confused about Christianity, and I hadn't seen enough of the confusing ways that people treat Revelation to be confused about it. But over time, I did become confused because of the movies and ways that people teach in ways that simply are wrong in their approach to this book and in the things they focus on in this book. Just last week, we finished going through the book of Ecclesiastes for our summer sermon series. And afterwards, uh, uh, a newer member came to me, uh, actually, who was a newer Christian, and said, the book of Ecclesiastes was really life-changing for me. This was amazing. And I said, that's great. Revelation is coming up. Have you ever read Revelation? He said, whoa, that's that's, kind of scary. I'm confused when I go there. And that so well captures... I think most people's thoughts on Revelation, it's intimidating, it's scary, it doesn't make sense, all these pictures and and images, but what I want to make clear, if there's one thing that's made clear in this study, it's this, the book of Revelation is not a puzzle intended to confuse you, intended only for the spiritually elite to grasp. It's not a puzzle to confuse, it is a picture book to clarify the great things that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That's Revelation. It's a picture book intended to clarify, not to confuse. What I want to do this morning is talk about who wrote this book of Revelation, who received this book of Revelation, and the reason for the book of Revelation. Let's talk first of all of the writer. The writer is John. We learn in verse 2. John, yes, John, the apostle of Jesus. Yes, John, the one who received the secret at the Last Supper of the one who had betrayed Jesus. Yes, one of Jesus' inner circle friends, disciples, the apostle John. And this vision, these visions, I should say, were gifted to him as God gifted Jesus with these visions. And Jesus, knowing the importance of these visions, gave them to an angel, and the angel delivered them to John. And John, you'll notice in verse 9 when he introduces himself and some of the details of him, the writer, John does not present himself as one who is superior or one who is a better Christian because he was Jesus' best buddy when Jesus lived on the earth. He didn't present himself as the superior apostle, though he had every right to do so, just as the apostle Paul oftentimes did for good reason. But John does not present himself here as one who is superior, as an apostle, but he writes this letter as one who is in solidarity with the people who are receiving this letter. Look at what the writer says of himself in verse 9. 
He says, I'm one who knows tribulation. In other words, I, though I'm apostle, best buddies with Jesus, I know the ups and downs of life under the sun. Tribulation. That's tribulation. John says, I'm one who knows the tribulations of this life. And so since he was best buddies with Jesus, it doesn't mean that he's escaped the problems of life under the sun. I'm one who is in solidarity with you in these tribulations, but I also know the truth that God has revealed. I have perspective from life above the sun. I have perspective from a kingly point of view. So he says, I'm one who shares with you not only in the tribulations, but in the kingdom. He's speaking of the great privileges he has, the great identity he has as a royal son, knowing that God rules over all things, and he gets to be part of this kingdom in all of the royal privileges and access and significance of what it means that that is his identity. And so he's saying, even now, I, together with you believers, belong to this kingdom. But here's the catch. To participate in this kingdom, in this present life, is one that involves tribulation. To participate in the kingdom benefits in this life necessarily involves tribulation and suffering. Yes, we share in the power and the privileges of the kingdom and in this victory that Jesus brought about. But it involves tribulation. That's why he says, I also share with you in the patient endurance that is true for every Christian. John is showing here what's true of every Christian. Every Christian who faithfully walks with the Lord will experience tribulation in this life. We also experience the lordship of our God. We belong to him and he rules over all. And because of this hope, we patiently endure. There is no worldview in the world like the worldview of the Christian who is able to say, I belong to a kingdom that rules over all and that one day will be a paradise spreading from sea to sea in this very world. My God is the king. He rules over everything, and yet I suffer. But I know why I suffer. Therefore, I patiently endure. There's no worldview or perspective on life like the Christian worldview. John is showing his solidarity here with these Christians. He says, I'm presently on the island of Patmos that was about 40 miles west off the coast of what is modern-day Turkey for us. This was about 40 miles away from Ephesus at that time where he was part of the church and, and knew many of the churches that had been planted there. John says, I'm presently on the island of Patmos because I faithfully proclaimed Christ. I was a faithful witness, and they didn't like that very much. Therefore, I have been isolated on this island called Patmos where we know there was a colony of prisoners, and they were held there because they were known to be disruptive to Roman society on the mainland. And John, because of his brave and courageous stance for Christ and the victory of Christ, the rulership of Christ, even over Caesar, he was 
exiled to the island of Patmos. That's where Jesus gave him these visions. And it was on a Sunday. Notice he says it was the first day of the week. That was the day of the resurrection, like our Sunday. These little Easter's we celebrate every first day of the week. Let me remind you, this is not the weekend. This is the glorious first day of the week, which speaks to the new life that we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it was on the first day of the week that John, in the Spirit, received these visions that he wrote down for us, was commanded to write these for us, and he did. In the Spirit speaks to this special revelation that God gave to this apostle of Jesus so that we would have this in the Scriptures. I just want to give you a little interpretive key for going through Revelation. That's a really important phrase, in the Spirit, because it breaks down for us very clearly the markers where something new begins in Revelation. There's four times where we read, in the Spirit. This is one of them. After we read, in the Spirit, comes a significant vision of world history leading up to Jesus coming back to bring about new creation. In a few chapters, we'll see in the Spirit again, and that will start a new description of world history leading up to Jesus' final coming. A few chapters after that, we'll read John in the Spirit, and a new vision will come of world history leading up to Jesus' Jesus' second coming. And here's something that's so important to know about the book of Revelation. Each one of those sections is saying the same thing as the other one. So there are four of those sections, speaking of world history, the realities of life as we know it, as believers, leading up to Jesus' second coming, and they are recapitulated, that's a big word, you might say recapped every time in a different way, looking at life under the lordship of Jesus from a different angle. One of these visions in Revelation looks from this angle, and we say, wow, that's what life is like as a believer. That's what's happening behind the scenes. That's what Jesus did. And then we look at it from this angle in a different vision. It's saying the same thing from a different angle with different pictures and different imagery. Revelation is a picture book, and it's broken down into several significant pictures. And it was John in the Spirit on the Lord's Day when he received this command and these pictures. And he received these pictures as they were. John didn't receive words and then put them into pictures. John actually received the pictures that we have in Revelation and faithfully gave those to us. That is some important information about the writer. Now let's talk about the recipients, the original recipients of this book called Revelation. The recipients are described for us in a couple of different places. It's described for us in verses 1 and 2 when it says this was made known uh, to his servants. It was made known to the seven churches. That language is used. It's really important. Let me tell you what this means. There's sometimes confusion that Revelation was written about some period in the future that has not yet happened yet, and that's the whole focus of it. And so the things being described here only matter 
to people who can figure out when that time is and that they're living in that time, and that's just not right. Originally, this was written to a first century church in Western modern-day Turkey. It was written to these churches and real issues they faced and that they had. But it was not only written to them, it was written to the church in every century, including the 21st century, including whatever century it will be when Jesus does return. The time period that is used here to describe those who receive and apply the book of Revelation is describing every church between Jesus' first and final coming. You see, he says seven churches. That's an important number in Revelation. He says seven churches because the churches described there were indeed seven real churches, but he emphasizes seven because seven in Revelation means completion, a fullness. And so he's really describing here a revelation that is for the whole church. The fullness of the church throughout the ages. This is for those in the first century, those in the 21st century, and those who are living the last second before Jesus' final coming. And so, this is to the seven churches then, and the fullness of the church now, including New City. They're referred to as seven lampstands, of course, shining the light of Christ the truth of Christ in his world, seven lampstands. And notice those who receive this are servants, bond servants, actually, we're told in the opening verses, making clear that revelation is not to the spiritually elite who have time to sit in their armchair and play with numbers and play games and try to figure out complicated codes. No, 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 no. This was for everyday people, adults and kids, to clearly understand the most important things God wants you to know about being a Christian and being part of the church. This was given to everyday adults and kids. I want you to know, if you had an invisible journal right now to write on, in fact, you can even sort of do some air writing right now, if you were to answer these questions about what it is that scares you right now and what it is that burdens you right now. You could write that in your little journal, okay? You can picture what that might be. What is it that's really a thorn in your life right now? What is it that is just so heavy it doesn't make sense? What is it that is bothering and frustrating you? What is it that is causing loss in your life? What is it that feels like it will never go away and you don't know if you can live one more day if this thing continues? What are the relational issues and the marital issues and the issues of singleness and work and money? What are those things in your life that you'd write in your little journal? I want you to know that they would write the same things, those who belonged to these seven churches originally receiving this letter. Whatever you're dealing with, they were dealing with as well. And they were dealing with in-your-face attacks from the evil one and also insidious, slow infections of sin that over time leave you numb. Those were the kind of people who were intended to receive this letter. Not the elite, but everyday people with real struggles. I mean, in-your-face kind of struggles, like the book of Job, where there's just attack after attack coming out of nowhere, like a falling over at the pool. 
kind of in-your-face attack where Satan takes every bit of leash he can to try to destroy life. And those insidious, slow, falling in the love with the world kinds of temptations that happen over time, like the character in the Bible named Demas that Paul spoke of, who fell in love with this present world and walked away from the faith. There's story after story in the Bible of in-your-face attacks and insidious, slowly infectious kinds of numbing attacks. Both of them will kill you, and in your life, you will face both of those, and the people who received this originally received these as well. What we see in Revelation is that these are the people who need to read this book because we're the ones who receive the threats of persecution, the seduction of loving the beliefs and practices of this present world, and the deception into a complacent compromise of our faith aligning with culture. There are threats to the church of persecution. There is seduction. There is deception. Those of you who are everyday kind of people, adults and kids, 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 this matters to you because it's written to people who are being seduced, and you are, deceived, and you are, attacked, threatened, and you are. That's who it was written to. People on the verge of losing heart, people on the verge of falling into worldly practices and beliefs that will destroy your life, people who are on the verge of giving up and walking away. How do we know this? Because we have letters to these churches that we'll look at in the weeks to come speaking of the issues that those churches faced and that every church faces. It was written to a harassed and struggling people. Why? Okay, that's who wrote it. That's who received it. What's the reason for Revelation? The reason for Revelation is to wake us up. Because when we wake up every morning, we're more consumed with the things our eyes see and that's happening at work and in our home And we don't really believe that the warfare described in Revelation is happening. We don't really believe that someone is out to destroy and shipwreck our faith. We don't really believe the battle that's taking place in the book of Revelation was written to wake us up. That's why it was written the way it is, apocalyptically. Well, that's a weird word, Ryan. What does that mean? It's speaking of a certain genre of literature, and the Bible is a library filled with all kinds of different genres, like history, personal letters, wisdom literature like we just saw in the book of Ecclesiastes. Well, here we have apocalyptic literature. And it was written apocalyptically to wake up 
a sleeping church and sleeping girls and boys spiritually and sleeping men and women who are spiritually asleep. It was written apocalyptically. That's why if you don't read it that way, you're going to be very confused. If you go into a reading of, for example, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, written by C.S. Lewis, you see that was a certain genre of literature. When you come to the home of, of the beavers in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and you see them talk, and you see that they're married, if you don't understand the, the, the genre, you'll say, well, well, I'm not going to read anymore. This is crazy. Beavers don't talk. Beavers don't, ha- don't get married like that. This is silliness. Well, of course, it's a certain genre. If you're reading it like a nonfiction biography, you're going to be in for a world of hurt. So you have to read Revelation apocalyptically, which means you have to understand what that is. And what apocalyptic literature is, it's when God speaks either in written form or in his very voice verbally to his prophets and apostles, and he reveals pictures. Apocalyptic is built around pictures. He reveals pictures that wake us up to see the true reality of life in this world, of the reality of evil, the reality of the evil one, the reality of God and his victory and how he's applying that right now, the reality of sin and what it's doing to you. It's pictures that take off the mask of all those things. It's pictures of beasts and dragons and horses and swords to show you how big a deal those things really are. It's actually giving you pictures that take off the mask of the ways we become so numb to these realities and we say, oh, my, my sin. I mean, it's a small thing. It's a normal thing. Everyone does that. And the book of Revelation says, oh, there's a dragon in your life that must be slain, or it'll destroy you. It's pictures to wake us up, to see the reality. It takes the mask off of the things that we grow so sleepy to. And so apocalyptic literature takes off the mask of what our eyes see And it tells us that our eyes are lying to us. Our eyes are lying to us because what our eyes tell us is this is all that there is. And what Revelation says, oh, no, it's not. Your eyes don't know half the story of the reality of God and his work in this world and the evil powers that fight against us to destroy us and to destroy God's purposes. That's apocalyptic literature. And the reason we have revelation is because all of this is going down right now. The beast and the dragons and all these pictures. We say, what does all that mean? It's, it's what's happening right now, not in some future period of time that the elite have to somehow predict. Between Jesus' first coming and his final coming is the end days. That's why all this language of it's happening soon, it will happen quickly throughout Revelation. It's not talking chronologically for them or for us. It's talking from the perspective of the Old Testament, like Daniel, who said there is a kingdom that will be established in the end days. It's coming. God is coming. His presence will reign. It will be so good. His paradise is coming. There will be no more evil or sin. But for Daniel, it was a long way away. But when Jesus came, it was near. And so it's talking about a nearness, not chronologically like counting the seconds and the minutes. 
It's talking about a historical nearness. For Daniel, it was far. For us, it is near because we're right in the middle of the end days where all these realities are taking place and we must know about them. The end time kingdom of Daniel has arrived in Jesus Christ. Therefore, this is the revelation of Jesus. Notice verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Does that mean he is the source of this revelation? Or does that mean he's at the center of this revelation? You know the answer to that. Yes, both of those. The revelation of Jesus right there in verse 1 says he's the source of this revelation and the center of this revelation. In fact, the very first word of this book is the word for apocalypse. That's where we get the translation, revelation. It means an unveiling. And notice he says, whoever reads this book aloud, now remember they didn't have their Bibles all printed out in nice form so they can carry their Bibles to church. They sat under the public teaching and preaching of God's Word to those who preach this book, to those who read it aloud, to those who receive it and take it to heart and obey it, you will be blessed. I think that's the only Bible book that I know of that specifically says, reading this book and taking it to heart, you will find blessing. Therefore, how could a book that was intended for us to understand and take to heart be one intended to confuse us? Again, this is a book intended to clarify you what's what's clarify for you what's most important and central to the Christian faith. And you will be blessed because it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is not about concealing. It is about unveiling. I'd like to read for you just kind of the personal statement that in my study over these past weeks seems to sum up best, the central theme of Revelation, okay? In answering the question, why Revelation? What's the reason? Here's here's why I think Revelation was written. What is the central theme? To assure us of the good news that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is perfectly yet invisibly working out His eternal plans through His imperfect visible and harassed church en route to a very public victory and en route to a very real new creation called paradise. That's what Revelation is unveiling. Let me remind you, it's not a puzzle to confuse. It is a picture book to clarify. Let me remind you, it is not to satisfy idle curiosity, but it is to secure you in this present conflict. Let me remind you, the book of Revelation is not intended to be silly and to tickle your fancy. The book of Revelation is intended to train you for present warfare. Let me remind you, the book of Revelation is not to get you to worry that there is someone who is really evil and it's happening in this world. No, no, no. It's intended to bring you to worship. Notice there's worship just erupting with praise all through the book of Revelation. Great picture of the Christian life in this tribulation, all this evil, not intended to worry us, but because we know the story of Revelation, it leads us to worship and to sing like we did this very morning. We're participating 
in this kingdom through our worship. It's not intended to make you afraid of the vicious one who wants to destroy you. It's intended to assure you of the victory of God who rules over the vicious one. It is not a hodgepodge of random visions. No, it instead, it instead is a tightly wound story of the victory of God. It is not a book to get lost in, in uh, isolated details, but it is a book that leads you to long for the indescribable reunion that you will have in fellowship with God when He makes all things right. It's not intended to get lost. It's intended to cause you to long for these things. It is not to get caught up in silly games, but it's to be captured by the gospel of God, tying up the loose ends of what he started at the very beginning of Genesis. That's what revelation is. It's God tying up everything, all the loose ends that he started in revelation, and he's tying it up for his people so that we will enjoy his victory Ever. That's why he says in verse 4, grace and peace. That's why he says grace and peace, because what marks the Christian who understands Revelation is one who knows there is no condemnation, not simply because you have not merited his salvation, but because you have demerited it through your sin, and yet God says no condemnation, grace for you who believe, grace and peace, not alienation. You're not alienated from the Lord. No, there is peace with God. Verse 4, grace and peace. And he goes on to show this is a work of the Trinity. He describes the Father there in verse 4. The language he uses of the, the, the Father, of the one who is and who was and is to come, is language from the Old Testament describing God. And then he talks of the seven spirits. There's that word seven again. What's that mean? The word seven? Remember, completion, fullness, Oh, you see what he's doing here, don't you? The seven spirits. Don't get caught up in these pictures. What do these seven spirits look like? It's plain. He's speaking of his Holy Spirit, the perfect spirit. Oh, he's talking of the Trinity here. Normally, Jesus is second and the Holy Spirit third, but here Jesus is third because he's about ready to go off in praise about the work of Jesus, beginning in verse 5, Jesus was the faithful witness. That is, Jesus is the one who knows all the truth, and he will tell you the truth. That's what got him to the cross. He knew the truth. He told the truth. They crucified him. We trust him. He is the faithful witness. He's the firstborn of the dead. He was born in this world like all of us. He was born of a mother in his mother's womb. He was born. He grew up. But unlike us, he died for three days and was raised not just with his old body, but with his new glorified body that we will share in one day when God comes back in his victory and lifts the bodies out of the ground. And the earthquake in Revelation is talking about the earthquake of God raising up all people and giving those who believe new perfected bodies of glory. And Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, giving us hope of what we can look forward to. He's ruler of the king's Oh, that's dangerous language because when you talked about rulership and power in a Roman society, oh man, you thought about Caesar. But he says, no, he's Lord over Caesar. He's Lord over every ruler throughout history and any leash that he has given to any 
ruler throughout time. He oversees it and is in control. He is ruler of all the kings, him who loves us. He's speaking of Jesus here, this front and center of Revelation. This is the point of Revelation. He's making clear what you have in Christ, the, the one who loved you and brought forgiveness by his blood. He didn't say he helped you, but he set you free from the consequences of sin, the consequences of condemnation, the consequences of the controlling power of sin, the consequence of the continued presence of sin. Jesus has set you free from this by his blood. You took your blood guilt to the cross, those of you who believe, and your blood guilt that deserves hell went to the cross and was a stain upon Jesus, and his righteous blood washed over you. You walked away with his cleansing blood, and he kept the stain of your blood guilt, and he had to answer for your sin, all of this to set you free. That's the Jesus at the center of Revelation. And he has made us a kingdom and priests, he says. Notice in the next verse. So he's saying here that Salvation is not just in the negative of what we get freed from, but what we get freed to. We're a kingdom and priests. That is, we get to live life much like Adam and Eve did before the fall. What did they do? They were part of a kingdom and they worked for that kingdom and it was joyful work. And they were priests in that they had access to God and they talked with God and they walked with God. And in Christ, we get the privilege here and now to be a kingdom and priests, and this was a big deal for those people who received this early on because the catch-22 for early Christians in Western Turkey was they were kicked out of their Jewish synagogue if they were Jewish before, and those who were Jews were exempt from offering sacrifices to Caesar. But now the Christians were, ex- were kicked out of the Jewish synagogue. Now they had to offer sacrifices to Caesar. They refused that, so they lost their jobs and they lost their friends. And apparently they had no one to worship, but they're reminded here, oh, you worship the living God. You work for him. You have access to him. Stand firm. You're part of the real thing, the kingdom and priests, and so are we. Oh, yes. This one will come with the clouds, the clouds of his glory. Every eye will see him. Those who pierced him even will wail. Those who pierced him, it's you, it's me. We will wail knowing that it was our sin who pierced him to that cross. We will wail until he looks us in the eyes and says, but you belong to me and I went to the cross for you and I was judged for you. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the beginning and the end. That's the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. There was no one before him, no one after him. There's never a time in your life when you will need anything and he won't be there with all the resources for everything you need as a Christian and a parent and a single man or a woman. Whatever you need, he has the resources. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Amen to that. Like a son, like the Son of Man among the lampstands. That's a picture from Daniel. You can't know Revelation unless you know the Old Testament. That's a picture from Daniel. Where can you find him? With his church. 
Doesn't that help us to love the church? Where, do you, where can I find Jesus? The church. There he is among the lampstands. And not only our church, but churches throughout this city and throughout our nation, churches throughout the world that we often forget about the church around the world. Where can you find Jesus? Oh, he's with his lampstands because he loves his bride. That's where he is. He's wearing a robe. Talk, look at the talk of his hair like white his eyes of fire seeing through the lies and the schemes of people, his feet that would crush anything in his path, his hands, his mouth of a sword. That's describing the warrior Jesus who comes to rescue his people. It's an Old Testament picture from Judges of a warrior who comes. He has every weapon that he needs to save us, to rescue us, to encourage us, to cause us to stand firm. Yes, indeed, this warrior is coming for us. John says, I saw this and I fell dead. <laughs> I fell like a dead man. And Jesus places his right hand on John's shoulder and says, don't fear. I'm the first and the last, and I am alive. I'm alive. I have the keys to death and Hades, speaking of the power of death and the realm of the dead. Death and Hades, speaking of that one power of the realm of death and the power of death. Don't fear. I think that's a great summary line of what Revelation is all about to you. Jesus, who is living, places his hand upon you, and he says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm alive. I have the keys. Let me just say, in closing, I heard a woman speaking this past week of looking for an apartment. Very difficult to find an apartment. Very expensive to find certain apartments. She didn't have the time to go looking for apartments, so she went to Craigslist. And on Craigslist, she found a broker of apartments, and the broker said you had to make a certain amount of money or else you needed a cosigner, and she couldn't do that. And so they came up with an agreement that she would pay six months in advance of the apartment so that she could get the keys without a cosigner. And she got the keys. He drove off. She had the keys, so excited to go to her apartment. And she realized, found out that that apartment didn't really exist. And those keys did not work. And she felt the horror of what just happened, that she had not only the wrong keys, but was promised a place that doesn't really exist. And I want you to know that the beast of Revelation wants you to believe that Jesus is a scammer, that he's a scammer, and that he does not really have the keys. And we stand firm knowing that he has the keys for us, and they are real, very real. That's why I need revelation. And that's why you need revelation. And so let's go deep together in revelation. Let me remind you lastly of the theme again. To assure us of the good news that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is perfectly yet invisibly working out his eternal plans through his imperfect, visible, and harassed church en route to a very public victory and en route to a very real new creation called paradise.